Hello, and welcome to Strategic Alternatives, the RBC M&A podcast. In each episode, we explore the trends shaping tomorrow's global mergers and acquisitions landscape. I'm Vito Sperduto, co-head of Global M&A. Recently, I had the opportunity to sit down with my colleagues, Larry Grafstein, Deputy Chairman of Global Investment Banking, and Ben Mandel, Head of Canadian M&A, and we discussed our outlook for 2023. In this three-part series, we explore topics impacting deal-making in these disrupted times, including what the new normal for M&A will look like and how the rise of activism and the shifting regulatory landscape may impact boardroom decisions next year and beyond. One thing it might be interesting to talk about is when do we get to a new normal? I think we're not quite there yet in this environment to get to that new normal. I think we need to understand what's the floor from a financing perspective in terms of those markets. Does the IPO market settle a bit? Because I think we need that constructive market to operate in our world. But you know, just curious in terms of views, how are we thinking about a new normal going forward and you know, what happens once that comes forward? Well, I think the leveraged finance markets, when they stabilize and come back, there, there will be a, a big snapback among sponsors because they probably haven't been investing as much as they would like, just given all the money that's been raised. We talk about dry powder all the time. Um, but in this environment, it's been harder to put money to work. So that will, if financial conditions ease up a little bit, um, the leveraged finance markets uh, normalize and stabilize over the next few months we could see a big upsurge in that part of the market. For public companies, you know, M&A is always a capital allocation decision. And we've had a tough equity market environment for most of 2022. Um, Stock prices have been under pressure, and so companies have to think about buying back stock, not just putting money to work. They also have to think about the inflation's impact on their own businesses, and of course that varies across sectors, but it it generally raises costs and, and for most companies. And so they have to look at the cost of organic capital investment, and they have to assess that vis-a-vis M&A. So I think it's a little bit harder, you know, in industries where strategic consolidation is necessary for competitive reasons, you know, that will always have its own cycle. But the sort of macro cycle will depend to some degree on on M&A's attractiveness against other uses of capital. Yeah, and I think you're going to see so uh, the financing is going to be an important aspect, right? So can you get, you know, how much can you borrow and can you raise capital in the public markets if that's something that you need to do? And I think it positions well-capitalized corporates in a strong position to be able to pursue and and execute on M&A if they have the will to do it. And I think that that's going to be industry dependent over the next number of months. You know, if we pause a second on the on the financial sponsors, for example, if we look back in history and think about post the 08 financial crisis, it took them a little bit of time to get to a point where they were back to normal in terms of doing transactions. Now, that was a, a more significant impact to the system in terms of the banks. But if you looked at sort of amount of equity in LBOs as a, as a marker, in the 2011, kind of 2014 timeframe, that percentage was more around 36, 37% on average for LBOs that were being done in the market. You saw that creep up to more like the 40% and you know, and then over the last 12 years, I believe the average has been about 42%. And that average was what you saw just kind of pre-pandemic, you know, and, and actually kind of creeping up a little bit. We're now seeing those levels 
if you look at sort of in the 44, 46% range. And so that's a significant amount of equity to put into a transaction. I think part of that is that the multiples are higher over the last couple of years in terms of where valuations have been done and they've gotten more comfortable doing higher multiple transactions. But it's also been a situation where they've been required to put in more equity and now I think they're starting to look at how that adjusts going forward. I think it also helps with some of the uncertainty aspect of what the future holds. And so if you're in a private corporation, I think we've all seen a bit of an uptick in terms of earnouts and use of yeah. contingent consideration. That's challenging with public targets. And I think that using public equity to do it where you have sort of a like-for-like use of proceeds is is a way to capture some of that aspect and, and some of the uncertainty that, that might be inherent in some of those deals. Yeah, I, I think we've seen clients get creative in terms of how we've structured transactions. It might have been a situation where, given where the financing markets are, you find ways to maintain the existing capital structure. Maybe you don't sell all full control to trigger a change of control, and you sell 49%, effectively the same thing, uh, but it's not technically change. Maybe you know we've seen some sponsors who've really liked a certain asset do an all equity backstop transaction where they say, well, I'll just manage the debt financing after the fact, um, which is fairly aggressive. Uh, and I think you only do it in very certain situations where you really understand that asset. We've certainly seen the continuation funds come into play where they're looking to put a, mar you know, continue in the investment in some fashion, put a marker on the table in terms of where that is today, bring in another party to kind of solidify it. But the reality is you can kind of maintain the status quo a bit. But again, all of this is great, but once the market opens up to do traditional LBOs on a regular basis again, I think you're gonna see that kind of take the, take the day. Well, back to the question of uncertainty and, and confidence. A related theme is that there's a higher standard of proof, in effect, for a public company yeah. transaction. And we, this, is, this we definitely saw in the second half of 2022. Perhaps it's not surprising because we went from effectively a zero interest rate policy to uh, you know, a, a policy that requires people to really think about the cost, the after-tax cost of debt. Yeah. And also in, mar in, in stock market environments like this, the buy side is generally in a bad mood. You know, most, uh, most institutions have lost money this year just because the, you know, we have, we've had a bear market. So a transaction has to have a better, you know, architecture is very important the rollout of the transaction and the announcement's very important. And boards can expect that perhaps, whereas where it was almost automatic that an accretive deal would lead to a rise in stock price, even for the acquirer, we're back to more of a traditional environment where the acquirer who pays a premium uh, you know, has a stricter scrutiny. So that does feed into confidence. It doesn't mean that good deals shouldn't get done, and they will, and, and we're working on many any situations right now, but it's not just an automatic, easy thing in terms of unveiling a deal to the market. Yeah, and I think that your burden of proof comment, I think, can be seen in, in a lot of areas. You text one of them for sure, where you're seeing a lot of companies come, you know, come to the public, mm -hmm. and you know they've been hit really hard. And I think I think there was yeah. this period of time where shareholders and investors were willing to look through and sort of believe in in a promise of the future, but. I think that's gone away, and you have to really have a, a, a proof point for for companies to make you know shareholders to have confidence yeah. and uh, to support these opportunities. I think you're seeing that play out in the private markets as well with growth capital, where 
I think investors and growth capital are really waiting to, to be able to see more of a path to, to cash flow generation, which wasn't necessarily there for a period of time. And the third point is around raising capital. I think it's a tricky environment to raise capital for private equity funds. And I think that you're going to start to see a difference in the performance between large proven funds and those that are on, you know, initial funds and early stage. I think you're going to see a a real difference there. Because I think think you need a thesis now. It's not just about financial gearing. You'll see LBOs when the financing markets return. But it's not going to be just about gearing, and I think there really has to be a thesis behind the investments these sponsors are making. If I just take a step back and think about this environment and what it means for what we're doing, traditionally, an important part of our role with our clients is making sure that there is a tight rationale and story to communicate to the market about the transaction that you're doing. I think in less volatile times, there's more leeway in terms of what that story looks like. And, you know, just, it's okay. Well, there's just another deal going on. In this environment, that is critical. I just think with volatility, making sure that the communication, the elevator pitch, whatever you want to call it, the outreach to investors immediately, or even in some cases before a transaction happens, having all the constituents on board, communication to employees, those elements of what we do are that much more critical in a volatile environment. And thinking through capital structure, because for many, many years, people have been replacing higher cost debt with lower cost debt. And you know, to the credit of the public company universe, everybody termed out their debt. Everybody yeah. you know, raised money at very attractive levels. And COVID almost accelerated that on, on steroids. But now, you know, probably we're looking at that having been an all-time you know, low of cost of debt. And so going forward, all of that very attractive debt that was raised yeah. will have to be replaced probably by slightly higher cost debt. And that means there has to be an extra level of, of care taken when looking at how much, how much debt to put, for example, in a cash and stock deal or how much to pay in an all-cash deal. You know, I think your point around having a tight story and a strategic rationale for doing M&A is important. And part of it is there's activists who are going to hold companies' feet to the fire. And that's part of the role they play. And, and we're seeing activists get more and more involved in situations, and M&A is a key one where either they're encouraging companies to pursue M&A for value creation, or they're trying to disrupt M&A that they don't believe makes sense. That's right. And, and look, I think the, you know, we're, we're involved in certain situations with clients where we are dealing with activists or active investors, because again, there's, there's a fair amount of blending right now in terms of whether it's a pure activist or someone who has a, a longer term strategy. I think the majority of these parties today are taking longer-term views. They're looking for board seats. Interestingly enough, if you look at sort of the first three quarters of this year, the number one commentary by activists or vocal investors um, has been around M&A. And it's really been critiques of existing deals that have been announced, or it's been, you know, you should consider a divestiture or you should consider a sale. And I think, you know, that it's been an interesting uptick that we've seen. And it's every quarter, it's gotten progressively louder. Well, and your point about activists and active fund managers is very important because all active fund managers are now using activist techniques in many ways, whether it's public or private, to make their views very clear to boards. And those active fund 
uh, investors have been under a lot of pressure because it's been very hard to outperform the passive indexes over the past several years. And 2022 was a very tough equity market if you wanted to try to outperform, again, because the volatility meant that you know, if you were short, you were at risk of having to cover. If you wanted to raise cash, you were at risk of missing an uptick. And we've had a few bear market rallies in 2022. And so we think that that, that environment probably continues into 2023. So, so companies have to be cognizant not just of the ubiquitous activist possibility, but also their own shareholders and active fund managers generally. You, know, you mentioned the, uh, the index funds. An interesting development that I'm I'm watching to see how how it plays out and how our clients manage it is that C-suites are going to have to manage this shareholder democracy that's going on, which is a lot of these larger index funds have set up mechanisms and technology that allows the shareholders in their funds to vote on specific provisions that are put forward, whether it's a transaction that's being voted on at the annual meeting, whatever it might be. And so they've passed on the vote, and so it'll be less passive and more direct by the actual holders within the fund, which is going to make it a bit more difficult for that CEO as they're communicating the message. Again, back to the tighter script around why you're doing this. Well, and they themselves also have governance departments now that are looking at transactions and companies through, through that type of a lens, uh, sometimes an ESG lens. But just generally, they're not purely passive anymore, I think, is a very important factor in the markets. For a long time, institutional investors have essentially outsourced their votes to proxy advisors. So, right. so do you think that that's gone? Do you think that's going to continue to diminish and, and the funds take more of an active stance and an active role in that? I think ISS is still very important. I think some of the other services are still very important. But it just creates a, uh, an overarching complexity to managing your own shareholder base. You have the activist threat. You have existing investors who, uh, you know, who believe in the company but are not shy about giving their opinion. Uh, you then have the passive funds that are increasingly allowing shareholders to express their own views uh, or are themselves mobilizing. And then you have you know, the very important um, you know, proxy uh, advisory firms. You know, those, those are important too. So you have to be aware of all of those things when it comes to doing an M&A deal. And I think the reason we're going through all of this at year-end 22, looking ahead to 23, is there is a bit of a difference. Uh, this, this has been developing for a while, but the toughness and the volatility in the markets have actually increased the complexity of the task for, for companies. Now, I think one thing we can all agree on is that as we go into 23, when this window opens up, certainly corporate divestitures have been one of the leading areas historically, and it's going to lead the wave out, I believe, just as we kind of go through it. We've seen a lot of our clients very inwardly focused for a number of years, really evaluating their businesses, and certainly know which assets they would like to monetize, especially in an environment where if you look at where cash on balance sheet sits today. It's come down since the end of 22. So it peaked at the end of 22 at an all-time record, if we look at the you know, S&P 500 in the U.S. as a proxy. And it's certainly come down, just given the volatility and what we're seeing in the markets, higher cost of financing, there's been more use of cash. Corporates that are doing transactions, I think 76% of them are all cash year-to-date, which is a very high number. And so... Certainly, um, 
you know, we're going to see that. Well, and inflation affects the cost structure of some of your portfolio businesses differently than others. And so that's something that that managements have been looking at the last, you know, year or so. And that we totally agree. Again, you know, an overlapping theme is activists themselves will put pressure on companies to optimize their portfolios as well. So you don't really have the luxury of either, you know, incredibly accommodating financing environment or benign kind of price levels. So we agree. We, we think that there'll be a, a huge wave of corporate-related divestitures as well as big pools of capital from sponsors very eager to, you know, to be involved in those acquisitions, basically. You've been listening to Strategic Alternatives, the RBC M&A podcast. Join us for part three of our 2023 Outlook series in the next episode. Until then, thank you for joining us. And if there are any topics we've discussed that you'd like more information on, please contact us directly or visit our website at www.rbccm.com. This content is based on information available at the time it was recorded and is for informational purposes only. It is not an offer to buy or sell or a solicitation, and no recommendations are implied. It is outside the scope of this communication to consider whether it is suitable for you and your financial objectives.